And so when it comes to leaders, what they can always ask is, what's the one thing if I do it well will make everything else either easier or unnecessary? And speaking of servant leadership, the twist of that is, what's the one thing I can do for others that will make life easier for them? That's one small step for man. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. We choose to go to the moon, not because they are easy, but because they are I have a dream. You can't handle the truth. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. Super, 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 super. Super you. Thanks for tuning in to the Super You Podcast. It's a podcast designed to unlock and unleash your inner superpower. I'm Jake from Equal Man Studios. Welcome to the show. Today, we're reposting a conversation Equal Man had with Upwork earlier this year. He discusses his journey to becoming a best-selling author and keynote speaker, the meaning of Flossom, how he came up with the idea for his book, Digital Leader, how he came to be wearing his infamous neon green glasses, the concept behind the digital stamp, thoughts on AI, whether or not business school is worth it, and much, much more. As the production team at Equalman Studios gears up for 2024, we want to invite all of you, our listeners, to chime in. Give us your feedback. What do you like about the show? What don't you like about the show? What sort of topics would you like to hear Eric speak on in 2024? Are there any guests that we haven't featured that you want to hear from? Send us an email, equalman at equalman.com. Again, thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. So Eric and I worked together back at uh, Yahoo Enterprise Solutions in the uh, early 2000s. Um, and, uh, the team and I used to give Eric, uh, kind of a, a little grief, uh, for being optimistic about everything. Uh, and it turns out that optimism and resilience and drive are a pretty good platform to build your career on, especially as an author. So, uh, super excited to have you here today, Eric. Um, let's just jump in. Um, so, uh, what is, uh, what do I want to talk about? Why don't we start with how you became, how you went from being a marketing leader at Yahoo Enterprise Solutions to being uh, uh, a best-selling author with uh, Socialnomics? Yeah, no, well, it's exciting to be here. It's so good to see you, Dave, and it's so good to be with your team. And for those that didn't piece it together, if you think Yahoo Enterprise Solutions, we thought it was cool because it formed the acronym YES. So that's why we <laughs> thought it was super cool at the time. Um, but no, I kind of fell in this backwards. I mean, as you know, we're just working in the digital space. And then all of a sudden, I was the head of marketing at Travel Zoo. And we started to, I started to look at MySpace just because my cousin would be so excited to check it when she got home. And at the time, she's really checking on her computer rather than her phone. And I go, what is this social media stuff? And I go, oh my gosh, this is the next big thing. So it was the right place, right time. We wrote Socialnomics. And then fortunately, as you mentioned, that went on to become a, a bestseller because it was before MySpace was bigger than Facebook. So it was basically telling people that, hey, this isn't just for kids. Uh, this, is, this isn't just for teens, it's for business, for politics, for everybody. 
And so it's easy for us to see that now. And I tell that because there's going to be the next thing. We're kind of dealing with AI right now. Whatever the next thing is, people don't want to see it in the moment. And so it was really out of frustration that I wrote that book, Social Nomics, just, oh, people can't see it. And I said, like, oh, people can't see it. And then we wrote that book. And then all of a sudden I gave a talk at a, a book expo because that's where they launched these books. I didn't know it, but it's called Book Expo. It's in New York. And my publisher said, you have one of the slots. And so my mom was actually in town because we were taking the moms, me and my two buddies were taking our moms to the, this music musical weekend. So it worked out well. And I'm thinking there's going to be like three people in this room that want to care about this thing called social media because no one knew what it was at the time. Uh, and then when I showed up and it was a full packed house, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is okay. This might be a thing. And then from there, fortunately, um, I tend to mumble even in interpersonal communication. So I never thought I'd be a keynote speaker or speak around the world. But because I mumbled, I always took Toastmasters. I was always trying to solve for it and fix it. And so that helped me when that moment came. And then also when I was head of marketing at Travel Zoo, the, the founder was German speaking, very introverted, very brilliant, but very introverted. And so part of my role was actually to go with him to these Wall Street meetings, uh, to go to the press room with him to kind of be the voice. And so I was terrible at first. And then over time, because it was kind of you're thrown into that fire, uh, looking back, I was like, it's the best thing that could have happened to me. But in the moment, it was it was really frustrating. But uh, looking back, I'm like, gosh, that really happened for me. That was a good break. I love that you uh, you frequently talk about uh, being in the right place at the right time or uh, falling into something and, and trying to you know sink or swim. In fact, uh, one of the things that I loved about rewatching your commencement address from uh, Michigan State was, uh, you know, you start out optimistic uh, with be flossom, but you basically say people, you're going to fail and it's okay. And embrace the failure. How did you kind of come to that as a, as a worldview, I guess? Yeah, just through a series of failures. I started, once you start stacking these up and you look back and you go, wait, that's not happening to me. It's actually happening for me. Uh, and you mentioned the word flossom. All that means is that people don't love us because we're perfect. They love us because we're perfectly flawed. Uh, and for like Upwork, I love Upwork. I use you every day. And so whether you're a provider at Upwork or whether you guys are working as a team at Upwork, it's understanding that when you make a mistake, how do you capitalize on it? That's what being flossom is all about. It's like, whoops, we made a mistake. Second, here's what we're going to do to fix it. And then three, follow up and actually fix it. Uh, and our research shows that if you do that, then then the customer is three times more likely to repeat as a customer than someone that never had an issue in the first place. And so it's not to say to go out and make issues for your customers so you can resolve them. What it is saying is that we're going to make mistakes. And so just own up to them, say how you're going to fix it and then follow through and fix it. Um, and that dovetails nicely in with failure is that when you fail, it's only looking back that you can kind of figure out how did that help me? Um, so in that moment, it's going to be bad. It's going to be frustrating. Uh, but then you're going to go, man, I don't know. But in a couple of years down the road, I know I'm going to look back at that. And that moment actually helped me uh, in that moment in time. So you, you have this, uh, this hit book, Social Nomics. You're riding the crest of the social media wave, uh, probably doing press tours and book tours, book sightings and, and talks and everything. So how do you uh, create the space and come up with like, what is the follow-up? You know, how do you repeat the successes as being an author? It's, it's, uh, it's hard to, uh, to see the next trend or to see the next, uh, 
the the next uh, leadership concept that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean, it was it worked out because then people were asking me, companies were bringing me in to figure out, hey, how do we do this social nomics thing? How do we do this social media? And so an example would be I was brought into Mont Blanc, you know, the pen company and the wallet company, and the watch company. And mm-hmm. we sit down with them like, all right, let's let's unpack this. Let's see what we're going to do socially. And then all of a sudden I go, we're going to send them to your website, obviously. And then they go, oh, yeah, we don't send we don't have a Mont Blanc website. And I go, what do you mean you don't have a website? Oh, we don't sell directly to the customer. I'm like, OK, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's have a bigger conference. Let's stop with the social media. Let's go back like 10 years. Let's figure this out. So there's a lot of reasons why they didn't have them because they have all these Maisons, which is their retail outlets. They didn't want to upset the apple cart. Uh, but fortunately, Dave, I mean, you and I know that we were already dealing with that at Yahoo, that the, the front runners had already dealt with that same kind of conflict. And so that mm-hmm. was the epiphany where I said, wait, wait, these folks, a lot of them don't even know digital leadership, kind of like this thing came to my head, like they don't even know the brass tacks, the basics of digital leadership before we get into the kind of the new things, whether that's social, whether it's AI, whatever you want to talk about. And so that's where that came from is, is trying to sit down with all these people, these leaders in their companies, very smart, but they didn't grow up with these these things per se, or even if they did, they kind of lose track and get in the weeds. And so that's where that whole concept of digital leadership came about is really just talking with different leaders at different companies and organizations and nonprofits and developing stuff that would stand the test of time, knowing that technology changes every second, but human nature never does. What are the habits we can practice every day that aren't going to change that help future proof you at Upwork, not only today, the, the individual, but also in the years ahead. Awesome. Well, I, we were kind of joking at the outset before we let people in. Uh, your your green glasses are kind of upward colored, and they've kind of become your trademark. Tell, tell us a little bit about how did you embrace uh, the, the glasses and embrace the superhero uh, of Equal Man? No, it's a great question. I haven't always worn these, as you know, personally. <laughs> And for those out there, so I've always been called Eric Qualman, but uh, I haven't always worn these green glasses. I'm going to tell this story as quickly as I can, but I do think we're all living the same movie. We're just different actors within that movie. So as I tell this, it's really all of our stories. My hope is you don't do what I did and resist it for 15 years. Uh, so you get your first email address, first initial, last name. It happens to be mine's Equal Man. Uh, and the beautiful thing is when I bring that up, now I get all these other people coming out to be some really bad email truncations but i didn't like it because people were being fun they're, they're being good natured about it but it could be like i was at cadillac when i first started my career as an intern they're like oh man we're we're out of coffee well equal man you must be super fast with that superhero name why don't you run down the street and get us some coffee so i really didn't like it uh people were good natured about it but i didn't necessarily like people calling me equal man and then I realized that actually this isn't happening to me because that was my mindset. I'm like, ah, why is this happening to me? And then all of a sudden I realized, wait, this is actually happening for me. So in a moment in time, it was my third book, which is called What Happens in Vegas Stays on YouTube. We'd done in, in a magazine, wanted to interview for the book. And so we took, they wanted to do a cover shot for the, for the magazine cover. And they said, hey, we'd love to have some fun with this. Do you mind with your unique moniker, Equal Man, wearing some Superman glasses? I'm like, yeah, let's make it happen. Uh, so they gave me some Clark Kent like glasses and they said, well, it's our St. Patty's Day. And so they're green. Uh, and these things were super bright. They're, they're the same ones I have on right now. And so we take that photo. And then a couple of weeks later, I flew to Kenya to give a talk. And the night before the, the woman that was showing me around Kenya, 
she was driving me over to this rescue shelter. We're going to adopt a baby cheetah, not to take home. My wife would kill me, but just to support the local area. So on the ride over in the car, the woman goes, hey, you know, we had the Olympic sprinter Usain Bolt here two days ago, and we filmed him and took photos of him. I'd love to film you and marry this footage together so we can raise more awareness for this rescue shelter. I'm like, fantastic. I'm all in. And then she paused and goes, but obviously when we're filming, we want to make sure you're wearing your green glasses. And I look at it, I go, oh, I don't wear those around all the time. I mean, like, I wouldn't want people looking at me. It'd look kind of, kind of crazy wearing bright green glasses. And then the look of disappointment on her face, I really never wanted to see that look ever again. And she goes, no, no, that's whatever in Kenya's expectation is tomorrow when you're on stage. So I put forward the college effort, but there's no green glasses in Kenya. And, and so I never really wanted to have that, that disappointment ever again. But most importantly, I realized, wait, this isn't happening to me. It's happening for me. It's time for, for me. And then that's why I'm explaining the story for all of us. It's time to step into our story, our unique story, discomfort and all. And so it's really uncomfortable at first to really step into your true self. But long term, it's the most comfortable place that we can live. And, and some of you may have already stepped into your true self, but you haven't stepped into that biggest chapter of your story. Uh, because we don't want to fail. I mean, it comes back to what we we're talking about earlier is that if I never take that step, then I've never proven to myself that I've failed. But if you never take that step, you're always staying in the same place that you've always been. And so for me, it was just that epiphany to like, okay, it's time to step in and embrace being equal, man. And if I can help one other person just by wearing some crazy green glasses, then it's worth any discomfort that I have to walk in. That's awesome. Uh, I I, uh, I saw your emerging star uh, on LinkedIn, and the green glasses were always there for, for probably what last ten years or so. Uh, your signature, uh, it's hard to miss, and uh, uh, it's a it's a great story of how you came to really embrace that. Um, you mentioned also your other book, um, uh, "What Happens in Vegas Stays on YouTube," which I think is a great uh, great title. What was the uh, what was the drive behind that? Just the uh, the overall influence of social media and the fact that uh, everybody's walking around with a with a camera in their pocket now. Yeah, I mean it's funny because people say, well, first of all, it's funny with the the glasses because now we've produced over a hundred thousand of these because it's our, the, my small team here. They have to when we go and speak, most times they want the glasses on the chairs for people to wear. So you never know. <laughs> how this stuff's gonna go from a business standpoint. And so it's just always just keep keep stepping forward and all of a sudden you'll, these things will open up. But in terms of that book, what happens in Vegas days on YouTube is I would turn on the television or look at my news feed on my phone every day and realize that someone made a misstep because the world had shifted and they're still making them today. They still make them today that people don't realize we live in a fully transparent world. And so I was really trying to help individuals and also businesses out understand that integrity and reputation are now the exact same thing. Now they used to be different. So your integrity was what you stood for behind closed doors. And then your reputation is really what the public perceived you to be. So they shouldn't have been disconnected, but they could be because you had this kind of this wall, this closed door. So you might've been doing things nefarious behind the scenes and no one knew about it. Maybe it never comes to light. The whole point of that book is that everything will come to light because of all the phones and the full transparency that we have. So it's really just trying to, how do we embrace our best personal brand? So it wasn't all about wagging the finger, don't do this, don't do that. It's like, how do I embrace and grow my personal brand 
and how do I protect it? It's what I call your digital stamp, which is really just the modern version of your reputation. So it's how do I produce my best and protect it? Or like your organization, when you think about running marketing, it's how do I produce my best brand and then also protect it? And there's really two components of the stamp. There's a digital footprint. That's anything that we create and upload. So we have all control over that. But the more important piece is that shadow. And that's what other people post about us. And more and more, obviously, post about us online. And we think about Upwork. It's if I use someone to help us create an animated piece, which we do all the time, then part of their digital stamp is that shadow of what I post about my experience with them. Um, obviously, they're controlling. Here's our studio. Here's what we do. It looks great. So that's when you think about that, that's their footprint. They're putting that out there. But then the more important piece is I use them. We work together. And it was a great experience. So all of a sudden, I post that, that part of the shadow out there. So again, in short, it's really about how do we produce our best digital stamp and also protect it. That's, that's awesome. That's really cool. Um, you mentioned a little bit at the outset how fast tech moves. And uh, uh, you, know, you, you kind of rose to fame with the social media uh, emergence from you know, your friend Tom on uh, MySpace through, <laughs> through Facebook uh, and uh, Instagram and Twitter and all, all the rest. But then we had we had mobile come into play at, at one point uh, and everybody, to your point, walking around with a with a digital camera or video recorder in their pocket. We've had cloud uh, and now we're, we're kind of at the dawn of AI where everything is uh, the, the AI hype cycle is in full swing. And, and we're obviously uh, uh, playing into the AI, how it's going to change the future of work. Uh, what advice do you have for product and marketing leaders to uh, about kind of recognizing one of these uh, these waves and not getting too caught up in the hype, but recognizing kind of what's real and what's, how do you want to position the company to take advantage? Yeah, my thing is always just, you need to stay a year ahead of the competition, but never a year ahead of your market. So once you do that, it helps you kind of frame it a lot better. Okay, we got to mm. test these things, but we don't need to overinvest in them. So we need to kind of dabble and kind of figure out what's working, what's not. Uh, more times than not, you can kind of see, the thing is you don't know the timing of these things. So most mm -hmm. of us on this call, because of what we do, we can kind of say, okay, artificial intelligence is gonna be big, but we don't know exactly when it's gonna be. Or to a more specific example, let's say QR codes. So QR codes, 2003, everyone's like, this is the greatest thing marketing's ever seen. We're like, oh, all marketers are like, yeah, yeah, eating it up. And then mm -hmm. no one used them. Yet fast forward to the pandemic, 2020, boom, they explode. And so it's really about the timing that no one can understand. If you did, you'd be the richest person in the world. So it's just trying <laughs> to figure out, okay, let's stay, test this stuff. We're ready to go when this thing hits. Um, the one thing about AI, I'm pretty bullish on AI. I wasn't, I mean, uh, people called me to talk about blockchain and I like blockchain, but I was like, I'm not gonna talk about it because I've talked to people that have written books on this stuff, my friends, and they can't explain it to me in four minutes, like the deep, deep, deep stuff that I need to know. And if they can't explain it to me, that means they don't know it either. So I'm not getting on stage mm. to talk about that anytime soon. It, but when you think <laughs> about AI, it's already around us. So, I mean, you use Grammarly, you use an AI, right? I was just at my daughter's volleyball game. Awesome use of AI, because you just put the camera, you put your phone, records the whole game. It's cutting all the dead time out of the game. And you can also send it to grandparents and say, I only want to watch, the grandparent only wants to watch number seven. They just get the video of that number seven. So the mm -hmm. cool thing about AI, it's already here. It's just trying to figure out 
how big it's going to be now. You know it's going to be big in the future, but how big does it, how, how quick does that ramp take off? Um, I think it's actually underhyped long term. I think it's overhyped in the short term because there's still a lot of nuances that need to be worked out with it. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's really about testing that stuff. But in short, to answer your question, just always kind of when you're starting to get anxiety, go, I just need to be here ahead of my competition and make sure I'm never too far ahead of my customer. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Let's rewind a little bit because uh, I love the story. Uh, I, I, I probably wasn't even aware. I knew you were uh, a Michigan State Spartan and a basketball player. Uh, but I, I think I always thought, oh, Qualman's the uh, academic All-American who didn't get as much playing time for Izzo. I didn't realize how you started your journey uh, as a basketball player at Michigan State. Can you share a little about that? Yeah, I think it'll be relevant for everyone here today. If you can, just kind of close your eyes and think about what, what was your dream, like your ultimate thing when you're in middle school? Just like, what do you look back and go, what in your mind, like, oh, if I do this and you might not have known, but a lot of times you go, man, I love doing this. And so for me, it was my dream was to play college basketball. And it, it really wasn't NBA. I thought, well, wow, that's just too crazy. So just just college basketball was my thing. I loved it. I even created a, a magazine at the time in eighth grade called Swish Magazine. I'm still proud of the logo I made and. I was selling advertisements to local folks because just trying to give more information about this basketball magazine, selling it to my friends. But that was my dream. And then in my junior year, I thought my dream to play college basketball died because I was cut from my from my team, from my high school team. But it's funny about dreams is they don't really die, right? They're always kind of still back in there. They're always kind of annoyingly around every corner, like you can still do it, you can do it. Uh, but I went to Michigan State, and those not familiar, at the time, they're the number one team in the country, actually, my freshman year, preseason. So I get there, and I just want to be part of the program. So that I become a manager, uh, which is kind of a, the name for the water boy. You do a lot of things, but that's, that's about it. You help the team out. And I loved it, but it was a lot of work, and it's kind of a grind. But I still had that dream to play, and I kept putting on weight. So I know a lot of you probably put on freshman 15. I had to put on like 50 pounds. I was really skinny. So I'm like, all right, I got to put on 50 pounds of muscle. I have this dream to kind of make this team. And occasionally, like once or twice a year as a manager, there'd be, there only had 13 players. So someone, there'd be people injured or sick, but occasionally they'd have 10 guys. So all of a sudden I'd get in. That happened once or twice a year. Now, my junior year, I kind of woke up and realized, okay, I've been dreaming about this, but I haven't really taken action on it. I haven't told anyone that I'm dreaming about walking on this Michigan State basketball team because I was afraid people would laugh at me. And so I started to tell people because I go, what the heck? I got nothing to lose. I got one more year. Most people don't realize this, but once you start college, your eligibility starts. So even if you're not playing, the clock starts Mm -hmm. ticking. So I only have one year left. And then once I started telling people, some would laugh because it seemed ridiculous. But then the people that didn't laugh. They're like, yeah, you should do it, man. Let's go for it. Let's, how do we help? And then I got in a practice because it just randomly happened. I, and, and I started playing really well in the practice. I go, oh, this is my moment. I'm going to prove to them that I should be on this basketball team. And I'm making every shot. The ball's literally coming my way. And then kind of disaster struck. So I like to say now fate struck is that an elbow hits me in the mouth. So the elbow hits me in the mouth. Now keep in mind, I was born with two teeth missing. So never liked that because you had all this dental work, had to space it out. But again, things happen for you, not to you. And so I get hit in the mouth and then all of a sudden I feel 
that I some teeth got jarred. So I'm thinking, oh, it must be just the bridge, the fake teeth that are in there. But then I, in my hand, not to get too graphic, I can see that there's actually not just the two fake ones, but there's two real teeth as well. But I knew that if they knew that happened, that I would have to end practice. So I kind of hit them in a towel over on the bench and kept playing. But obviously, at the next time out, 20 minutes in, the trainer comes over because they could see some kind of blood. And they said, whoa, 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 you got to go to the dentist. So I'm not going to bore you with that unsuccessful trip to the dentist. But what happened the next day of practice is Coach Izzo goes, Quammen, I don't know if you're the dumbest guy I know or the toughest guy I know. But I think you're the dumbest guy now for continuing to play. But I knew that that was his way of saying, good job. Because what Izzo, he didn't need another, he didn't need the 13th guy on the team to make shots and to be great at rebounding. He needed that 13th guy to be willing to get hit in the mouth, get your teeth knocked out, and get back up. So he's built that entire program on that grit and the grind. So looking back, when I talked to Coach Izzo, he's like, that's probably the best thing that ever happened to you, Qualman, is getting your face in the way of that elbow because then that allowed me to walk on and become full ride to become a scholarship player the following year. Um, and so that dream might not have happened if I didn't get hit, literally get my teeth knocked out. So the next time you get your teeth knocked out metaphorically, realize that sometimes that's the best thing that's going to happen. That might give you that break. It might be a lucky break in the moment when you think it's not. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, that's, that's awesome. Uh, I'll, I'll stick with Michigan state for a minute because the thing that, uh, Kind of went viral and I saw it on Instagram and then again on LinkedIn was your commencement address going back to Michigan State. And that must have been a huge uh, personal honor for you to go give that address. Um, I rewatched it last night, as I said, and in front of all these graduates, probably the proudest day of their lives. You know, you do it. You come out and you do an instant poll. Right. <laughs> how many of you want to be successful? Everybody says yes. Right. And then you're like, how many of you want to fail? And then how many of you want to get your teeth kicked in? Like, how do you tie that into being an inspiration for, uh, for the way that you want to approach the entry into your professional career out of the safety of Spartan stadium and into the real world, uh, basically telling them, you know, it's okay to fail. Yeah. I mean, I, I told that, that audience and it was, it was just a, quite an honor. It was overwhelming to be honest. I was surprised I kept it together to be in the same arena where I played and also the same place where I graduated from to just be back there and then not be sitting in the audience or sitting on the bench, but to be on the stage. And so you can never, I could have never imagined that in my wildest dreams. And so what I told the audience was, I don't pray for you and I don't wish for you to be successful. What I wish for you is to be helpful. And if you're helpful, success will find you always. And so when we're caught in ruts, and I find this myself, that's why if we can talk about focus, I wrote a book around focus, got a tough time focusing. So I reread my books that I write because I'm really, I'm struggling with it as much as anybody else. Is that when I'm in a rut or I'm like, what am I doing? Or why can't I get over this hump or this challenge is really bothering me? Is that whenever I kind of serve someone else or I'm helpful for someone else, all of a sudden things start to unlock and start to open. It might take some time, but it's really that's why I always express to people is I don't wish, especially younger folks, I don't wish for you to be successful. I wish for you to be helpful because then you'll have fulfillment and then success is going to follow you no matter what. If you're a servant leader, if you're serving others, then success is going to help you every day of the week. And it's okay. It's inherent in our DNA as competitors and as siblings to where if your idea is not chosen at work and someone else's is, 
you're instinctively are like upset and almost like, well, I'm going to sabotage that idea, but that's not going to help anybody. It's not going to help you long term. And so once we realize that we can have that moment like, man, I'm really disappointed that my I was passed over for that promotion or man, I'm disappointed that my idea wasn't picked. But you got to ask yourself, okay, I can't see it now, but at some point that is going to help me. And so what I need to do is help the person that was promoted, or I need to help the idea that was selected because long-term that's not only the right thing to do, but ironically, it's going to help you out the most as well by being that unselfish. That's awesome. Like I'll go back to the, the, uh, comment you made at the beginning uh, around, you know, you were never uh, a, a confident public speaker and now you're delivering keynotes and a commencement address for 10,000 people. Like, how did you shift uh, your mentality to kind of embrace something that you didn't think you were very good at? Yeah, I mean, it's funny that by graduating class at the University of Texas, uh, so I went to McCombs for grad school in one of my good friends said of the 430 people that graduated the year we graduated you would have been 430th on my list of who is going to become a public keynote speaker and so he meant that as a compliment and i took it as a compliment because it's really that time that i put in looking back that really helped me now once you're on stage at book expo and this agent came up to me and goes, I don't know what you do for a living, but you should do this full time. You should speak on stage. Is it, it became a very learned process to where people ask me, are you nervous before you go on stage? Absolutely. Every time. I know the least of anyone in the audience. If I came to speak at Upwork, I know the least about Upwork of anyone in the entire audience. And so that can be, that can be overwhelm you if you let it. But once you realize, someone told me that I've been doing this for a long time and I've embraced it, is that you should be nervous, but turn that nervous into excitement. So turn that word nervous into excitement. And that nerves, which is excitement, now it's excitement, that's going to help you. It's that adrenaline. Just like if you're going to go play a sport, of course your heartbeat starts to beat a little faster you're about to go in the game. That's your body trying to help you out. So if you can channel that, that's fantastic. And it kind of came full circle. I was actually in uh, Irvine, California, uh, speaking with a, a large hotel group there. And they, this is occasionally happens at, at big conferences. They'll grab someone from the team and have them on stage. And obviously they don't do this all the time, right? This is just, this isn't their day job. They're pulled on stage. So this person's having a panic attack. They're younger, they're probably 28. And they're, they're starting to hyperventilate because they're about to go on stage. It's at the Anaheim Mighty Ducks Arena where they play hockey. So this is a big arena, lots of people. And it's nerve wracking for them, especially because it's their team, right? It's their peers that they're speaking in front of. So everyone's saying, oh, don't worry about it. Everyone wants you to do well. Don't get nervous. Don't get nervous. And then I knew that was the worst thing you'd tell someone because it's just not <laughs> helping. And right. so now we've been in that space, I go up to, or they ever looked at me and thought I was crazy. I'm like, hey man, you should be nervous. There's a lot of people out there, but it's a good thing you're nervous. That means you care. And so that nerves, your body's telling you right now, it's just giving you the energy that you need to crush it out there. And so yeah. he still was nervous, but it helped him calm him down a little bit so he wasn't hyperventilating. And so sometimes it's the opposite of what you think. And, and I wouldn't have been able to say that 10 years ago, but since I lived through it myself, I knew that the best thing to tell him was, yep, you're nervous. That's good. Really good. 
just turn that into excitement. You're going to go out there and crush it. Your body's going to help you out. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, we do have one question that came up in the, uh, in the Slido here. Uh, Brian Shumway, a fellow Longhorn down in Austin, said uh, uh, your reference to uh, McCombs Business School, MBA, was it worth it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just the networking was worth it. I had a great experience. Although I will say the first <laughs> the first semester I'm down there, I mean, literally, I'm Mr. Green Jeans. My best friend goes, oh, I'm going back to grad school to get an MBA. I think I pretty much said, I don't even know what that is. Literally, that's probably <laughs> what I said. I, and then I started researching. I go, oh, that's a good school. That'd be great, blah, blah, blah. So went up at the University of Texas. In the first semester, accounting was just killing me crushing me and i'm just i remember going to the council i go i don't even know if i should be here like i don't <laughs> why am i paying for this torture uh but then after that first semester is awesome it's fantastic and you'll hear this from everybody at nauseam but it's true the network that i created there is unbelievable i actually live in austin now um we moved here eight years ago from boston so I mean, it was one of the best decisions of my life. It was a hard one because I remember when I was going back to school, my mom's like, this is the dumbest decision you've ever made. My mom does not talk like that. We're from the Midwest. And so I go, what? I like, she goes, you should be going back at night, have your company pay for it. You should go to the University of Michigan. I don't know why you're going all the way to Texas uh, to do this. Uh, but I go, well, if I'm going to go full time, I decide I want to go full time. And so teach their own. For me, I just go, I don't want to go three, 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 night, three years at night. My brother did that. It worked out well for him. But for me, I go, I got to go all in. And if I'm going to go all in, I want to get outside of the Midwest. I want to experience something that's different. And so short answer, well worth it, primarily because of the network that I've created. It did help me get a great internship, a great job that then springboarded me. But but the biggest benefit was that network. Literally, my best friends are here in Austin. So my core group of friends are from graduate school. I'll be coaching my daughter's basketball team with my real good friend from grad school. And so um, and they've all risen. We were a bunch of we, we laugh because it's like I can't believe that most of my friends are the CEOs or founders of their companies. Um, they've been very successful, which if you looked back in the old time machine, you would have not placed a bet, a wager on any <laughs> of us to do well. I can tell you that <laughs> the odds would have uh, been high. Well, it's, it's super exciting to see the success that you've had. Um, in your bio, it also says that you are the creator of a popular board game, Kitty Corn. <laughs> what, what, what is that all about? I mean, I just in the moment, I love creating things. That's what I've realized is what I like to do is create things, whether it's books, I like to create, um, we do animation, we do some animation for companies. So I just like to create things from zero and, and, and build them is what I've realized that I really enjoy doing. I love being with people. Those are two things I love doing. So I try to put myself as much as possible in those areas. But I've got two daughters. And so we love playing board games. And we just started coming up with a game of our own. And I started going, wait, if we do this, this. And so I was taking paper and gluing it to existing cards. And we're playing it. Primarily, my dad is terrible at board games. So he was basically out. Like, he couldn't play. So he's off. Just I felt bad for him, right? So I got to create something that's very simple. Because he was the guy that all of you know in your family that you 
like, come on, you're like slowing the game down, or that's not how you play. You just said in taboo, you said the word, you can't say the word. And so <laughs> the short answer was we developed this kitty corn and started playing it with our family and our, our larger family and realized, wait, everyone likes doing this. So then I'm Alibaba, how do I make these cards? How do I get this out there? And not easy to do, I can tell you that. You always, as entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs at, at Upwork, you'll realize that, whoa, okay, this, there's always these snags you run into. But fortunately, we've got kitty corn out there in the world, and this is a busy time of year for it because of all the holidays coming up. So it's just been really fun uh, to watch it, and hopefully it continues to grow. Um, lot, very small margins in that business. You got to sell a lot <laughs> of decks, just so you know, but uh, it's been fun. Good family uh, board game to play during the holidays. A yeah. uh, couple more questions in the queue now. Uh, Allison asks, uh, you talked a little bit about the value of servant leadership. Mm -hmm. Are there any unique or specific ways you think tech leaders should embody this in our current landscape? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I would always go back to, and some of this goes to focus. So my last book's called The Focus Project. How do we focus really on big things versus busy ones or the not so simple art of doing less comma better. And so when it comes to leaders, what they can always ask is, what's the one thing if I do it well will make everything else either easier or unnecessary? And speaking of servant leadership, the twist of that is what's the one thing I can do for others that will make life easier for them? So whether that's a customer, whether it's a teammate, is that's the lens you need to constantly somehow turn, which is hard to do because you've got all your stuff, you've got your issues. If I gave you 48 more hours in your day, I didn't say 24. I said, if I gave you 48 more hours, everyone on this call, you still wouldn't get everything done that's on your list. So it's really about making sure that you pause. And then the thing that's going to allow a leader to really understand the power of this is at the end of each day, writing down what's the one thing that made them the happiest and why. And they'll start to see a pattern unless they're, some people are, but I'd say 90, 98% of people are gonna see a pattern that says, okay, the common thread is I actually helped somebody. It was bigger than myself. And so then crazy enough, it becomes if the old friends episode, right? If you do an act that's still selfish because it makes you feel better, that whole debate about, well, is it an unselfish act? Cause you know, it's gonna make you feel better if you do it for them. And so ironically enough, it's really just always looking through that lens, turning that table. Um, but that's a good, that's a good um, kind of habit to do at the end of the day is ask yourself, what made me the happiest and why? And you'll start to see a pattern that it's, oh, when I help these people, and you'll see a pattern of which people it is that really gives you the most joy. It could be your teammates, it could be a customer, it could be kids. Then you start to start looking at aligning your time. How do I take one minute more a day to do that? And then over time, you can kind of grow that minute into an hour to two hours, but just start small. That's very great advice. And they got one more question from Kathy Lee, who I saw was on. Uh, Kathy, you're welcome to ask it yourself. Hi, I love the glasses. I hope I, I hope you can hear me. My Wi-Fi has been cutting out a bit. But the question is, as you were raising your daughters, what lessons on leadership did you feel were most important to instill in them? And um, how did you do it? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's an ongoing, that's the hardest thing, to be honest. But ironically enough, so when I started wearing the green glasses, the superintendent of their school and some other superintendents gave me a call and said, hey, we'd love to come 
have you come give a talk at convocation. So convocation, I didn't know this. You guys are probably smarter than I am, but it kicks off the school year. So it's the opposite kind of a commencement address. It actually kicks off the school year and it's with the school bus drivers, it's with the lunch ladies, it's with the teachers, it's with all the support staff, the counselors. And so they're all in that room. And so these superintendents, one was specifically the superintendent for my girls school district. And so I went in and spoke and he goes, the other thing I want to do is he goes, I want us to use the green glasses throughout the year for the teachers and the lunch ladies and everyone to wear them and the students to wear them to remind them the most important thing we teach in school is kindness. And so I had an unfair advantage because all of a sudden in the school, they actually had on the iPads, the green glasses and the, the teachers would wear them every Friday and the students would wear them occasionally when they had certain days to remind them to be kind. And so that was also a reminder to me, to be honest, that it's like, okay, it's, it's all about being kind. And it's forced me in my bad moments, because we all have them, that if someone cuts me off in traffic, I got to realize that I'm wearing these green glasses and I'm like the, the kindness guy. And it's funny because one time in a, I was coaching the girls basketball team and, and I know the other coaches, but it's something had happened. So I was like, well, this is what should, we're kind of, it didn't get that contentious, but all of a sudden this guy is kind of half joking because like, Oh, Mr. Kindness guy, you don't seem too kind right now when you're talking about that play. And so uh, with the girls, it's just a reminder of me that that's, that's the most important thing is, is, is how to be kind to others. That's the most important thing that we preach. Love it. Um, I, I just got to ask, do you wear the glasses around at home? <laughs> in the house, sometimes they're, not a, sometimes they're not in the house, but anytime I go outside the house, they're generally on. Um, and it's funny because I'll forget now that they're on and so i'll meet like my friends uh parents were in town from montana and they're older and uh, they're probably in their 70s and so i meet the dad and i'm like oh that wasn't that friendly and then i kind of sit down of going of course i'm wearing these green glasses for like what is up with this austin place and where are my grandkids growing up this guy's wearing <laughs> these wacky green glasses and so but you will see with the glasses, people judge you both positively and negatively. But I'd say most of the time it's more positive. People say, oh, I love the glasses. Um, at the beginning, they're really off off the mark, like the beginning, like 10 years ago. But now there's more people that's more accepting. So uh, the world's just more accepting. So it's been been a little easier. Uh, I think uh, you're you're on brand uh, wearing those. It look, it, it's part of who you are now. Yeah. Um, I took them off uh, once so, too at basketball practice and girls, they're young, they're great. Cause I can tell they're like kind of scared. And the one girl goes, Oh, you look a lot older with those off. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, all right. We're almost out of time. I'll see if there's any more questions, but I think the one uh, kind of forward looking thing uh, I would ask, like, what, what do you see on the horizon that is exciting to you, either in the tech space or the marketing space or um, something that says, okay, I got to figure out a way to drive a project into that direction? Yeah, this is going to be off the beaten path a little bit, but I'm big on the mobile voting just because people automatically go to the presidential election, but just think more local level that hardly any of us vote at the local level. So how do we make it easy so it's on our phones? Like, here's the issue that's up for vote. 
here's what the pros are saying about it. Here's what the cons are. And then socialnomics, part, part of the book has not come to fruition. One of the keys of socialnomics is I want to know what my friends think, what they buy, what they do. And no one's really nailed that. So it's kind of a two-part answer, but they kind of dovetail. First of all, socialnomics, someone hasn't really nailed that to where, why can't I just find out if I've got my second kid, what's the best vehicle to get? that can accommodate now a family of four, and I should be able to see right away, oh, these 12 people that are my friends, they nine of them bought this vehicle, this is what they paid for, this is where they got it. Or last will and testament, you gotta write it, you have your kid, oh, I gotta write my last will and testament, how do I do that? Oh, 10 of my friends already did it, here's where they did it, here's what they paid. So it's like easy button, boom, boom, boom. So no one's really nailed that socialnomics piece, and then bringing that back to that mobile voting is that at the local level, you get that alert. Hey, the votes today, you don't have to come in. Just hit the radio button here, the radio button there. Here's what the pros are saying. Here's what the cons are saying. Here's where your friends are, are their opinion are of it. So that, in my mind, is pretty exciting. All right. And then the last question, uh, unless uh, something comes up on the Slido, I would say, You've been uh, writing books and traveling the world speaking for a while. Uh, what would you do if you came into an operating role at a company? How would you approach uh, leading a team based on all of the things that you've learned and talked about? Uh, what would be your you know, 30, 60, 90 day plan to establish yourself as a, as a digital leader, uh, regardless of what space it is? I mean, imagine it was Yahoo, imagine it was, you know, uh, uh, open AI or some other company that, and they say, okay, equal man, you are the guy for this job. You're going to come in and lead our team to grow our business or grow our market share or grow our customer base. How would you approach that? Yeah, no, it's a great question. It's one I dabble in a little more than you think. I'm like, ah, oh, it'd be cool to get back in the operating side because you always want, you know, it's just so fun to work with teams and to be there. And sometimes it's lonely on the road. I'm just <laughs> in the hotel and I didn't set up a meeting with someone because you never know what your flights are. My flight's delayed. I'm just sitting in the hotel bar going, okay, I'm speaking tomorrow. I'd love to talk to someone right now. But I would look <laughs> at it. I'd come in. Uh, first, I want to identify an organizationally, what's the one thing if we do it well? We'll make everything else either easy or unnecessary. What's the number one piece of friction we're removing for our customers? Because when it comes down to innovation or anything you do, you're basically removing friction. We do a lot of things as an organization, but what's the one thing we absolutely have to positively nail? All right, I've got that. Now, operating role, whether I'm in logistics, whether I'm marketing, accounting, now I'm looking at that bigger, I've got to get that question answered. I probably wouldn't come to work for the company if they didn't have that question answered, or I'd have to physically work with them to get that worked out. Because if they don't know that, it's gonna to be tough for me to execute whatever role I'm in. And so then I would look at it and go, all right, now our team role, this is the one thing. This is the one thing. Whenever you're getting pulled in a million directions, how do what, what you're doing, does it relate to this one thing? Now, 20% of the time, it's not really, you got to do taxes, you got to file stuff, you got to do certain things that are operational. But 80% of the time you ask, how am I supporting the bigger role here? And so that is the team. It should be able to be printed on a t-shirt. Get that as tight as possible. Very hard to do. Mark Twain said, I didn't have time to write you a short note, so I wrote you a long one. And you guys know that better than most in the roles that you're in. That's part of what you excel in. So you're helping the organization get to that. Because if you talk to an engineer, 
that t-shirt's going to be like 50 t-shirts. And so it's really getting that tight. So now you have it from your team. And then I've got to identify that for each individual player on the team to make sure they crystal clear know this is the one thing if you do it well, makes everything else either easy or necessary. And it supports our goal as a team, which supports the goal as an organization. So that's really hard to do because you're getting pulled in a million directions, but it's often you take these pauses, you do these offsites just to make sure that we get to understand like, okay, if I've got 20,000 things I need to do on my plate, which one directly correlates with the one thing that I need to do that's going to help everybody? Uh, that is an awesome way to, uh, to conclude, Eric. Uh, Equal man, it's great to reconnect after all these years. Thank you so much for uh, your time and your insights and uh, uh, your attitude. It's uh, it's really is inspiring for for our team to think about how we approach solving customer problems every day. Yeah, no, it's an honor to be here. I use Upwork all the time. We get animators and book editors, and so thank you. You've helped me with any success that we've had. So uh, love everything you do. Know that you're helping a lot of people. You're especially helping us here. So thanks for all you do. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, team. So thanks again for listening to today's Super You podcast. Again, it's a podcast designed to unlock and unleash your inner superpower. And if you want to pay it forward, make sure you go post a review for the Super You podcast because what that will do, allow others that aren't familiar with our podcast to discover it. And hopefully that allows them to unlock and unleash their inner superpower. So that's it for today's show. I'm your host, Equal Man, reminding all of us, it's not what we take from the world, it is what we leave behind. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 super you.